Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast to stolen lands across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. In April 2016, a protest camp started at the Standing Rock Indian Reservation to fight the Dakota Access Pipeline. With the slogan, Water is Life, First Nations people and allies came together as water protectors to stop the dangerous and destructive oil pipeline. The protesters faced significant violence by highly militarised local, state and federal law enforcement, as well as private security. Under considerable pressure, the outgoing President Obama briefly stopped construction, but the Dakota Access Pipeline was then approved by President Trump. Nick Estes is an activist, journalist and academic, and he is a cool wikasa, a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux tribe. Nick Estes's new book is Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Long Tradition of Indigenous Resistance. Taking the movement at Standing Rock as his starting point, he traces the traditions of Indigenous resistance that led to the No Darpal movement, and he considers what it means for the future of environmental and Indigenous struggles. We join the audience as Nick reads from his new book at a recent launch in New York City. In the aftermath of the October 27, 2016 raid on the 1851 treaty camp blockading the Dakota Access Pipeline, a rancid smell permeated the camps. Police and private security had heaped the camp's remnants, ceremonial items such as eagle feathers, pipes, medicine bundles, and staffs, along with mangled tents, sleeping bags, clothing, and teepees, into a large pile near the entrance of the Ocheti Shakoi camp. Cops and private security had urinated on the items before returning them. One night after it was decided to ceremonially burn the urine-soaked remnants, an Ihangtawa elder gathered young water protectors around a fire. She was dressed in the regalia she wore the day of the raid. Hundreds of copper pennies hung by red ribbons from her dark blue trade cloth dress. She told of her ancestors who were killed during the 1862 U.S. Dakota War. Evicted from their homelands, they fled to present-day Standing Rock crossing the Missouri River not far from the location of, o- of Ocheti Shakoni camp after U.S. cavalrymen massacred Dakotas and Lakotas in the Whitestone Hill Buffalo Hunt Camp. This was, to the day, exactly 150 years before Dakota Access Security unleashed attack dogs on unarmed water protectors at a nearby pipeline construction site. The day after Christmas in 1862, soldiers gathered up 38 Dakota men and boys and imprisoned them at Fort Snelling uh, in Mankato, Minnesota, a place we call Makato. Their medicine bundles were confiscated, heaped in a large pile, and burned as they were led to the gallows, singing their death songs, their crime, defending their nation and homelands. The same week that President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, Freeing black slaves, he also signed the death sentences of 38 Dakota patriots. The copper pennies hanging from the elders' regalia 
It had holes drilled into Lincoln's ears with red ribbons threaded through. He didn't listen, she said of the great emancipator, so we opened his ears. After 1876, the 1876 Battle of Greasy Grass, Lakota women used awls to carve holes in Custer's ears so he would hear better in the afterlife. Now it was President Barack Obama, North Dakota Governor Jack Dalrymple, and Morton County Sh uh, Sheriff Kyle Kirchmeyer who refused to listen. As singers began a prayer song, the elder reminded the young ones that tears flowing from their eyes were their ancestors speaking through them, and they were not tears of trauma, but of liberation. We survived genocide after genocide, she said. And then she danced, and the pennies swayed with the flickering fire and billowing smoke. Behind her, armed police were perched on a hill half a mile away, and their bright floodlights glared down on us. Our history is the future. This book explores the movement to protect the Missouri River, marching under the banner of Mini Wichoni, or Water is Life, how did it emerge and how does settler colonialism, a key element of U.S. history, continue to inform our present? No Dapple, as the movement became known under the hashtag, and Mini Wichoni are part of a longer history of indigenous resistance against the trespass of settlers, dams, and pipelines on the Mini Sose, what we call the Missouri River. The Ocheti Shakoni, or the Great Sioux Nation, um, our relationship to Minnesota and our historic struggle for liberation are fundamentally tied to our prior history of indigenous nationhood and political authority. This book is less a story about objects, individuals, and ideas than it is a history of relationships, those between the Ocheti Shakomi, the river, and the United States as an occupying power. <clears throat> By focusing on these relationships, we can see that indigenous history is not a narrow subfield of U.S. history, or of the history of capitalism or imperialism for that matter. Rather, indigenous peoples are central subjects of modern world history. This is not simply an examination of the past. Like No Dapple and Mini Wichoni, what I call traditions of, of indigenous resistance have far-reaching impl implications extending beyond the world that is normally understood as just indigenous. A tradition is usually defined as a static or unchanging practice this view often suggests that indigenous culture or tradition doesn't change over time, that indigenous peoples are trapped in the past and thus have no future. But as colonialism changes throughout time, so too does resistance to it. And by drawing upon earlier struggle, struggles and incorporating elements of them into their own experience, each generation continues to build dynamic and vital traditions of, of resistance. Such collective experiences build up over time and are grounded in specific indigenous territories and nations. So for the Ocheti Shakoni, the affirmation, water is life, relates to wotakuye, or being a good relative. Indigenous resistance to the trespass of settlers' pipelines and dams is, is part of being a good relative to the water, land, and animals, not to mention the human world. Contrast this with the actions of energy transfer partners, the financial backers of Dakota Access, and of capitalism more broadly, which seeks above all else to extract profits from the land and all forms of life. This is not to suggest that indigenous societies possess the solution to climate change, and in fact, many indigenous nations have actively part, uh, participated in resource extraction and capitalist economies in order to strengthen their self-determination. But in its best moments, Nodapal showed us a future of what becomes possible when everyday native people take control of their lives 
and their, des their own destinies and lands, while drawing upon their own traditions of resistance. I'm interested in the kind of tradition of indigenous resistance that is a radical consciousness, both anti-capitalist and anti-colonial, and is deeply embedded in history and place, one that expresses the ultimate desire for freedom. This region, our homeland, is also a part of Chesapa, the Black Hills, or the heart of everything that is. Chesapa is the beating heart of the Lakota cosmos, where we emerged from red earth, took our first breath, and gained our humanity as the Oyate Luta, the red people, or the red nation. During the last ice age, massive glaciers carved up the land, and after the ice retreated, it left rolling hills and tunneling valleys that became Buffalo Roads, where herds that once blackened the plains traveled during seasonal migrations to and from water. The buffalo followed the stars, and the people followed the buffalo. To honor our, our relations, we called ourselves De Oyate, the Buffalo Nation, or Wichachpi Oyate, the Star Nation. In these ebbs and flows of migration, all roads led to Minisose, which translates to roiling water for the once astir and often muddy river. If Chesapa is the heart of the world, then Minisose is its aorta. This is a Lakota and indigenous relationship to the physical world. What has been derided for centuries as primitive superstition has only recently be been discovered by Western scientists and academics as valid knowledge. Nevertheless, knowledge alone has never ended imperialism. The US military understood this vital connection to place and other than humans in the 1860s when it annihilated the remaining 10 to 15 million buffaloes in less than two decades. A century later, a branch of the, uh, another branch of the military the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers constructed five earthen-rolled dams on the main stem of the Missouri River, turning life-giving waters into life-taking waters. A river that was once astir was now choked and plugged. After World War II, the United States also aimed to get out of the Indian business to terminate federal responsibilities to indigenous peoples that had been guaranteed through treaties to relocate indigenous peoples off the reservations and to sell off remaining lands and resources to private industry and white settlers. The Pick Sloan Plan, as it became, to known, became known in 1944, a basin-wide multipurpose dam project which aimed to provide post-war employment, hydroelectricity, flood control, and irrigation to white farming communities in far-off cities worked in tandem with Indian termination and relocation. With the flooding of the fertile river bottomlands, people were forced off the reservation, and remaining lands were largely uninhabitable, making relocation the only option for many. Thus, 30% of the Missouri River um, reservation populations were removed, 90% of commercial timbers were destroyed, thousands of acres of subsistence farms and gar gardens were flooded, and 75% of wildlife, plants indigenous to the river bottomlands, disappeared. Over the last 200 years, the U.S. military has waged relentless war on the Ocheti Shakomi as much as it has on their kinship relations, such as the Buffalo Nation and the Missouri River. What happened at Standing Rock was the most, most recent iteration of an Indian war that never ends. So Standing Rock's capacity to bridge historic divides in indigenous communities has set it apart from other tribal councils and other tribal governments. This history was decisive in, in the creation of the No Dapple movement, which began with the coalescence of tribal councils and indigenous grassroots movements. Beyond the Dakota Access Pipeline, a growing international movement is fighting the expanding network of pipelines across North America, 
the Kinder Morgan, Keystone XL, Enbridge 9, Bayou Bridge, and TransCanada Energy East, among a whole host of others, connect Indigenous nations and frontline communities. The appearance of each new flashpoint of struggle indicates a growing anti-colonial resistance led by Indigenous peoples against settler colonialism and extractive capitalism. New pipelines are creeping across the continent like a spider web with frightening speed, but in the process they are, they are also connecting and inciting to action disparate communities of the exploited and dispossessed. Each pipeline exists in relation to other pipelines, and while Dakota Access technically only extends from North Dakota to Illinois, it is fundamentally a transnational project, interlinking with other pipelines and infrastructure to ship oil to a global market, crossing the boundaries of settler states and trespassing through indigenous territory. A vast array of solidarity networks supported the Nodapal struggle, Black Lives Matter, Palestinian justice organizations, religious groups, military veterans, and many more from other social locations and movements galvanized support for the indigenous-led resistance from far beyond the physical geography of the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. And Nodapa was reminiscent of other allied struggles that have enriched the indigenous struggles in the past, including the International Indian Treaty Council and the indigenous international movements of the 20th century. Countering settler colonialism's own physical infrastructure, trade routes, railroads, dams, and oil pipelines is the infrastructure of indigenous resistance its ideas and practices of solidarity. The, resistant camp, the resistance camps at Standing Rock may have been temporary, but the struggle for Native liberation continues. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. We're hearing from Nick Estes, author of Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Long Tradition of Indigenous Resistance. And now I want to tre- uh, turn briefly to a history, to the history that laid the foundation for solidarity uh, at Nodapple, at a history by no coincidence that also began at Standing Rock. So in the aftermath of the American Indian Movement, or Ames armed takeover of Wounded Knee in Pine Ridge, in the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in 1973, state repression nearly crushed the U.S. indigenous movement. The following year, the same Lakota elders who had called upon AIM to take a stand at Wounded Knee called upon them again to take the issue of indigenous nationhood in the form of treaty rights to the United Nations. Meeting on the Standing Rock Indian Reservation in June 1974, the International Indian Treaty Council declared its intent to ally with the darker nations of the world. Quote, we condemn the United States of America for its gross violation of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty and militarily surrounding, killing, and starving citizens of the independent Oglala Nation into exile. It read, or their declaration read, in reference to the brutal crackdown on AIM following their occupation in Wounded Knee. The Treaty Council appealed to what they called conscionable nations to join in charging and prosecuting the United States of America for its genocidal practices against the sovereign native nations, most recently illustrated by Wounded Knee and the continued refusal uh, of the United States to sign the 1948 Treaty on Genocide. It also called for the recognition um, of treaty rights, the acknowledgement that the relationship between native nations in the United States is international, the restoration of treaty land, the eschewal of violence, except in the case of self-defense, 
and the rejection of all legislative and executive acts since 1871, which uh, formally abolished uh, treaty making with indigenous nations, and the entry into international diplomatic relations with the United States. On the last day of the Treaty Council, uh, the Standing Rock uh, Treaty Council meeting, me, uh, meeting Russell Means and Oglala AIM activists took the microphone. Throughout the day, he had been reading various communiques from the Irish Republican Army, the Organization of African Unity, and several Arab nations in support of the Standing Rock gathering. There was some tension about the direction the Treaty Council would take. Most of AIM's leadership was still tied up in the courts from the Wounded Knee arrests. So how could, how could the organization fight for recognition at the UN? And more importantly, who had the experience, no, who, people had no experience with international law or human rights were in charge of their own destinies, um, but had no clue about the maze of UN processes. The path ahead was daunting and uncertain, and the tenor of the meetings, the meetings were sober. Means stated that the Treaty Council must look to all potential allies Quote, the United Nations, the Organization of American States, the Organization of African Unity, the Arab countries, the Communist bloc, and whatever is necessary for us to get our treaties in court and would give us the, the world forums a chance to hear us, end quote. Moreover, Means emphasized the historic character of American Indian struggles as it related to the rest of the world. Quote, what we are into is revolution, turning that cycle of life always back, he said. It wasn't just about Turtle Island because, quote, in the history of the world, the successful struggles for independence and the struggles which are still going on for independence all involve land, all involve land. Whether it's in Africa or Asia or Southeast Asia or the Mediterranean or the Middle East or in Ireland in the United States or Canada or South America or Central America or Micronesia or Puerto Rico, end quote. And now the Treaty Council had a global forum and allies worldwide. So in its publication, Oyate Wichaho, or Voice of the People, Dakota AIM frequently published interviews, short stories, poetry, and reports from Palestinians resisting Israeli occupation, even referring to Palestinians as relatives. Indigenous internationalism, as Means spelled out in his 1974 speech at the first Treaty Council meeting, was bound to the struggles of those fighting for emancipation of their homelands. And in the end, these alliances with the Global South and national liberation organizations proved the most productive for the Treaty Council. When the world turned its back on AIM, after Wounded Knee, the world's colonized reached out and helped launch indigenous peoples' rights at the international level. Interne international Treaty Council delegations were directed to make friendly relations with other countries and to ask them to recognize the, 68, the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty. The delegations were well received by their hosts, especially in the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc countries. Who were, not, who were eager not only to support indigenous causes, but also, pointed out, but also to point out the hypocrisy of U.S. humanitarian intervention abroad while it denied freedom to its own people. During a 1977 visit to the Soviet Union, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, and West Germany, Treaty Council representatives Aline Goddard, Bill Means, Greg Zephyr, and uh, Bill Wapapa met with Iraqi, Algerian, and Namibian delegations I think because we got to know our brothers from the South better on these tours, we understand more than before that we are one people, observed Wapapa. Much like the European socialist regime's uh, support of black revolutionaries like Angela Davis, who was imprisoned by the state of California and later released, uh, released Eastern Bloc countries provided uh, transnational solidarity to American Indian struggles, and more importantly, 
where indigenous peoples found a hostile audience in North America, they found a welcoming audience abroad, especially among the socialist nations and other colonized peoples. The red nations of Europe and Asia provided a platform and support for the red nations of North America. International delegations were often guests of indigenous nations in the United States, and Palestinian and indigenous solidarity was particularly strong and visible. Both Palestinians and American Indians were unrecognized nations, stateless people who were fighting settler colonial regimes occupying their lands. At nearly every major treaty council event, Palestinians were in attendance. And it wasn't just political meetings. Elizabeth Cooklin recalls their presence at powwows in the 1970s and 1980s. Groups of 30, 40, 50 Palestinians with their guns, with their uniforms, came after the prayers in the morning, after and before the grand entry, and when people could go to breakfast and getting organized, the Palestinians were out on the tarmac doing military maneuvers, she recalls. Quote, they were invited there by our tribes. It was with this revolutionary solidarity that we, the Ocheti Shaokoni, entered the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline, which was spearheaded by the Standing Root Standing Rock Sioux Tribe again. There is also a direct link to the current um, U.S. efforts to orchestrate a coup in Venezuela and, the, and oil production in North America. Around the time of Obama-era pro-oil and gas energy policies began to take hold in 2008, during the Great Recession, global prices rapidly fell. Global oil prices rapidly fell. This was partially due to the United States and Canada building new carbon infrastructure to drill and transport oil from production to market. This oil boom has wreaked havoc on Native nations. With the creation of oil pipelines, tar sands, dead zones, fracking rigs and refineries, locking in settler economies to drill and drill at the expense of indigenous lands and lives. Meanwhile, the boom weaned the U.S. economy from oil imports from countries like Venezuela, whose major buyer was the United States but the alternative source of oil is much worse. And the most recent standoffs against the construction of oil pipelines at Standing Rock, Bayou Bridge, Line 3, Unistoten Camp show that the US and Canada still need to plunder indigenous lands to make, pro make a profit to keep their economies afloat. Thus, indigenous resistance in North America is at the forefront of combating imperialist plunder. And our struggles are interconnected with our relatives of the global south Venezuela's solidarity has also extended to indigenous nations of Turtle Island or North America. In 2007, Tim Gallego, a preeminent Oglala Lakota journalist, applauded Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution for providing heating assistance to hard-hit Indian reservations, the poorest places in North America on the Northern Plains during harsh winter months. Sitco Petroleum, a Venezuelan state-owned oil company, has for nearly a decade donated millions of dollars of heating oil, not only to reservation communities in the United States, but also to low-income black and Chicanx neighborhoods and homeless shelters. Guiago excoriated the United States' hypocrisy for failing to uphold its own treaty obligations, while criticizing other countries such as Venezuela, and the failure of capitalist indigenous economies to keep indigenous people warm and fed. Where was the rich casino-owning tribes, Gallego asked, busy counting their money, I guess. The gravity of enforced reservation poverty hit home this winter when Donald Trump shut down the federal government for 35 days to force the construction of his border wall with Mexico. Federal jobs and funding, which come in the form of treaty obligations, keep indigenous families afloat. 
Without them, families face a choice of food or heat. Prominent Ojibwe activist from White Earth, Winona LaDuke, has also made the connection between the war, and in, war on indigenous nations in Turtle Island and the economic war waged against Venezuela. In 2016, during the Dakota Access Pipeline struggles, she told Democracy Now! that the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline has to do with crushing Venezuela because Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world. Mini Wichoni, as much as it reaches into the past, is a future-oriented project. It forces some to confront their, unown, their own unbelonging to the land and to the water. How can settler society, which possesses no fundamental ethical relationship to land or its original people, imagine a future premised on justice? There is no simple answer. But whatever the answer may be, indigenous people must lead the way. Our history and long tradition of indigenous resistance provide possibilities for futures premised on justice. After all, indigenous resistance is animated by our ancestors' refusal to be forgotten, and it is our resolute refusal to forget our ancestors and our history that animates our visions for liberation. Indigenous revolutionaries are the ancestors from the before and the before and the already forthcoming. So perhaps the, ans the answers lie within the kinship relations between indigenous and non-indigenous and the lands we both inhabit. There is a capaciousness to indigenous kinship that goes beyond the human and that fundamentally differs with a heteronuclear family or biological family. Making kin is to make people into familiars into, in order to relate, writes the Dakota scholar Kim Talbert. This seems fundamentally different from negotiating relations between those who are seen as different between sovereigns or nations, especially when one of those nations is a militarized white supremacist empire. The water protectors ask us, what does water want from us? What does the earth want from us? Mini Wichoni, water is life, exists outside the logic of capitalism. So whereas past revolutionary struggles have strived to for the emancipation of labor from capital, we are challenged not just to imagine, but to demand the emancipation of earth from capital. For the earth to live, capitalism must die. Hechethu, Bolo. Nick Estes, speaking at the People's Forum in New York City. Thanks to the People's Forum NYC for the audio. You can find more at peoplesforum.org. You've been listening to Earth Matters. Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Or if you're listening on iTunes or any other podcasting service, why not rate us and leave us a review? It helps spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy, Victoria. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. Thank you.